All right, we're in 2 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2015, a very generous friend uh, funded an opportunity for me to go to Turkey on a study trip. Uh, I got to go to places like Ephesus and, and all those kind of things, and it, it involved, uh, the trip was sort of scripted around visiting uh, the stops on Paul's missionary journeys and also the seven cities of the book of Revelation where the churches of, that are addressed in that book were located. And it was the first time that I had been in that part of the world and I remember how on day one, we visited the port city of Italia. I got some pictures to show just because. Uh, port city of Italia was uh, the place that Paul landed in Asia on the very first missionary trip. And it was where he left. Uh, he and Barnabas left at the very end of that trip. And to, to be on the shore there, just picture, you know, Paul's boat coming in and him stepping on this, this land right in this area. is just so intriguing. But on that, that first day, we also made it to the city of Perga. And Perga is mentioned on that first missionary trip, Acts 13 and verse 13. Uh, and, and in that chapter, the only noteworthy thing that happened in Perga was that John Mark left. John Mark abandoned the team, went back home, and that becomes an issue at the start of the second missionary journey. But Perga was, for me, the first place to stop at an actual excavation site, an actual uh, location where you got to see and were exposed to an ancient Roman city. And I took a whole bunch of pictures. But I came across this one this past week because what you see along there on the, uh, the left side is an ancient Roman road that is still in place, that is still walkable. There's not a pothole in sight or orange construction cone. It's been there for 2,000 years, and this is a little closer, a picture of that same road down, uh, down on ground level. And it just, it strikes me, you know, the Romans, they built stuff to last. That's why there's still all those excavation, all those places that you can visit as tourists uh, in places that were part of the Roman Empire. But Roman roads were part of that. Um, part of what they built, they built to last. There's an old phrase that says, all roads lead to Rome. You maybe you've heard that before. And there's a backstory to that line, and the backstory is that Caesar Augustus, the ruler who established Rome as an empire and who reigned the longest, was reigning when Jesus was born, Caesar Augustus designed that entire roadway system. And they designed it uh, to branch out from one starting point, and that starting place was the center of the city of Rome. And so that's where the phrase comes from, all roads lead to Rome. You can go to uh, the city of Rome today, and in the Roman Forum, there's a marker indicating the Moarium Orium, which is the golden milestone, the starting point for all of the Roman system. This is where it begins. It was the origin of standard. Now, all distance across the Roman Roman roadway system was measured from that one spot. And so there is just this one place. And in that time especially, all roads led to Rome, all roads started in Rome, and all roads were measured from Rome. And that does make it a fitting illustration for what I want to talk with you about this morning from 2 Timothy chapter 3, because I think it is a very fitting uh, picture of the standard that we as Christians find in this, that we find in God's Word. 
The Bible is our golden milestone. It is our starting point. It is the standard for truth. It is the standard for morality. It is the standard for understanding God and mankind and how the two of them can ever interrelate, correlate with each other. Uh, the Bible is unlike any other collection of writings in all of human history. And the chapter that we come to this morning is one of the most significant ones because it explains, maybe better than any place else in Scripture, why the Bible matters. And that's what I put as a title over today's message. So if you've got a Bible or the Bible app on your phone, I would invite you to join me in 2 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. In the fall of 1982, I was a freshman at Baptist Bible College in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. My very first classes was Theology 101 uh, with uh, Dr. Benjamin McGrew. And Dr. McGrew, I believe, is still alive. He's a tall, rather awkward, uh, featured man. But he had a photographic memory. And uh, he's the most gentle person I think maybe I have ever met. Uh, he, I don't think he ever forgot a name. In fact, you know, we went back, I think, 10 years after I graduated. And, you know, he walked up to us and remembered our first names, you know, 10 years later after being gone. Uh, and taught me the importance of that practice. But though he could, it seemed to everybody else, very easily remember everything, he also expected you to remember some things. And the uh, expectation when it came to the doctrine of the Bible, there were two verses that everyone had to memorize in that class. Two verses that were critical to remember. And so they've stuck with me all these years. The first one is Second Peter 1, 20 and 21, where Paul wrote this, Above all, I'm sorry, Peter wrote this. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though humans, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And through Peter's words there, we, we learn uh, the process through which we received Scripture. That human writers spoke and wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Um, the other must-memorize verse is part of our text today. It's the last two verses in 2 Timothy chapter 3 where Paul writes, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Those are some of the most important words in the Bible about the Bible in the chapter that we're looking at this morning. And they help us answer that question, why does the Bible matter? Now you might have noticed that uh, this has been sort of a repeated theme uh, in this final letter of Paul. Over and over he comes back to the center point. The most important life habit, Timothy, for you to hang on to when I'm gone and for any believer to hang on to is to study, to know, to communicate, and to live the scriptures. And he, he's going to move to this most important verse as sort of a cap on this chapter. And in the process, answer that question. Why does the Bible matter? I think that's a question that we need to understand and we need to think through clearly even in the world that we live. So we're going to start uh, with just with the very first verse. And here's the first reason. Uh, the Bible matters because we live in terrible times disconnected from the truth. L listen to the first verse. Paul wrote this. But mark this, he says to Timothy, there will be terrible times in the last days. I probably don't have to try to convince many of you that terrible times is an accurate description of the world that we live in today. 
Uh, it seems like we are living in the last days of human history and it, morally especially, uh, we are living through some terrible times. But if you think that that's maybe a little over the edge, um, to sort of bolster my statement that we live in terrible times, I want you to, to listen to what Paul defines terrible times as like. And this is where he goes with the, the next verse. There will be terrible times in the last days and here's what that's going to look like. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. It's quite a list. Catalog, description of the traits of people in terrible times. And that catalog starts describing individuals that love themselves, their opinions, their wants, their desires, more than anything else. Goes on to mention those who love money more than anything else. And ends with people that love pleasure rather than love God. Um, and... To me, that's a pretty good evaluation, a pretty good synopsis of the way society at large functions in the world that we live. And that, that's just the, the two bookends. Uh, you you uh, go between those two bookends and there's a list of descriptors that very substantially characterize the culture in which we live. I found it kind of interesting how many of those uh, descriptors focus on pride. I mean, right at the beginning, boastful, proud, uh, conceited is mentioned a little bit later. Uh, if you've watched any news in the past week or so, you know that everything is all about this being Pride Month in the world that we live in. Well, three words in there highlight that as a character trait of terrible times. Um, I'm sure that Paul, as he wrote that, he was expressing his perspective on his times, but when I read that, it sure fits the world that we live in to a T. And there is a very important thing, I don't want to camp too much on those words necessarily, but there's a very important connection to that. Something to realize, that a society arrives at versus one way. And that is by abandoning the truth. And that's what happened. It happened in Ephesus. I think that's what we have seen in our society as well. Verse 6, Paul goes on to say, they are the kind, talking about people that fit into the terrible times category, they are the kind who wormed their way into homes, gained control over gullible women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jannes and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers opposed the truth. They are men who have depraved minds, who as far as faith is concerned are rejected. But they will not get very far because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. 
Now, Paul seems to have some specific individuals maybe in mind as he wrote that paragraph. He'd spent a lot of time in Ephesus. In fact, it was one of his closest supporting churches. It was the last church that he visited in Acts 20 before heading to Jerusalem and his extended uh, captivity that started there. Um, But he knew them. He knew them as a church. Uh, corporately, he knew them as a group of individuals, and so he knew there were some there that promoted false teaching and had, and had led other people astray. Less grounded individuals had followed falsehood because of the teaching of a specific people. But there's two things and two statements in there that I think are really important that, that explain how you get to verses 2 through 5 in a society, and, and that is the phrase they were, in verse 7, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth, always studying, always learning, uh, always seeking more information, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Think about our world today. You know, the, all the talk now is about artificial intelligence, but uh, we are a society in which there's a constant uh, quest for learning more and gaining more knowledge and having access to as much information as we possibly can, while at the same time abandoning a commitment to the truth of what God's Word has to say. Always learning never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. And then these teachers, he says in verse 8, comparing them to a couple of the magicians in Moses in Egypt that opposed Moses, he says, so also these teachers oppose the truth. It's not just that they set the, the truth aside and seek knowledge other places, it's that they actually oppose the truth. Um, characteristics of terrible times the expansion of false teaching, they both stem from disconnecting from the truth of God's Word. When God's clear Word is set aside, when the Bible no longer carries the authority and influence that it deserves to have, you end up with a chaos of the first five verses. And the explosion of false teaching in verses 6 to 9. And that is happening in the world that you and I live in. Disconnecting from God's truth is an increasingly standard practice in 2023. Uh, just this past week, I read a news piece and it you know, wouldn't have caught my eye as much as uh, that I uh, was studying this. But it was a news piece about how the second largest school district in the state of Utah, uh, Davis County, Utah, had nearly 74,000 students officially remove the Bible from their elementary and middle school libraries and made a great big thing about it. Uh, One parent, and that's all it sometimes takes, but one parent filed a complaint in response to a law that was passed last year in Utah uh, designed to remove pornographic or indecent books from public school libraries. Man, this one parent complained that the Bible also contained objectionable material, and so if the other stuff was going to be removed, so should the Bible, and the Board of Education went along with it. Now, I don't know that having the Bible in public school libraries is shaping the next generation all that drastically, but it is a a picture, I think. It's a symbol of the society that we live in. Disconnection from the truth is an ongoing and increasingly an aggressive process in our society. And as a result, we live in verses 1 to 5. We live in biblically defined terrible times. And Paul was concerned about that. He wanted Timothy to know 
that was the type of world he lived in. He wanted to know as you get closer to the end, that's the kind of world that we will live in. But Paul wasn't just, you know, all down about it all. His charge to Timothy was, well, you have to live in that. And I, it's valid for us to look at it that way too. We do have to live in this. So how do we? How do we navigate that well? How do we walk through this world? Um, in a way that pleases God. And, and Paul wanted to inspire Timothy uh, to value and prioritize the scriptures as the main tool uh, to walk through this world well. And so the rest of the chapter is, is where it gives the positive side of things. Uh, three answers to the question, why does the Bible matter? And here's the first one. Only the Bible equips us to live godly lives in an antagonistic world. Only the Bible does that. Uh, start with verse 10. He says, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you've learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. Paul knew Timothy's story well, and Timothy knew Paul's story well. And the last verse there, Paul reminds Timothy, you know what, I know you, and I know that the Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, uh, have impacted you, have shaped you from your earliest days, from when you were just a little boy. Uh, we saw earlier in this letter, you know, it was Timothy's mom and Timothy's grandma that uh, were faithful followers of Jesus that had been teaching him the truth uh, all his life long. It had shaped him. It had shaped his life. But so had how he had watched the Apostle Paul uh, in uh, the life of his mentor, Paul. Paul states pretty plainly there in verse 10, you know about the way I think. You know uh, how I live and operate. Uh, Paul and Timothy had spent so much time together that, that Timothy was not just... Um, aware of his approach to preaching and teaching, he knew his daily habits. He knew how he went through his day and his mission in life, his priorities, and his character. And he'd seen Paul up close handle persecution. And that is a big topic down through here. He mentions Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. And Lystra especially stands out in the book of Acts. Uh, if you read chapter 13 and 14, you'll find the details about that first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. And in Lystra, it's just graphically portrayed as this city that turned against them, against Paul and Barnabas so intensely that they were dragged outside the city. They were stoned with literal rocks and they're left for dead assuming they were dead. And uh, without, you know, studying through the rest of Acts, you might not realize this, but Lystra was Timothy's hometown. That was where Timothy, you know, was from. He very likely saw all of that. He may have been an eyewitness to the brutality that Paul endured there. And Paul intentionally brings the scarring image back to his mind. You know what? This is what happened to me. And it could happen to you. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, he wrote. Everyone, if you're serious about living for God, you're going to face issues, you're going to face problems, you're going to face hostility. And that might make the faint-hearted lose hope, 
But he used that then to lead into, so Timothy, here's what you do. Continue. Uh, continue in what you know from the Holy Scriptures and continue because you know those from who you learned it. Um, hang on to what you've learned from the Scriptures. It is only the Scriptures that will equip you to face the persecution and keep going. And hang on to what you've been convinced of because you know those people you learned it from. I um, was reading a book this week by Kevin DeYoung called Taking God at His Word. And he referenced this particular chapter uh, and commented how he had uh, experienced that in his own life. Gone to a rather liberal uh, college and came out the other side still hanging on to his faith. And this, this was uh, Kevin's testimony. He said, I went to a, went to a middle-of-the-road Christian college where the religion professors were often liberal. I saw many of my classmates have their faith deconstructed and never built up again in a healthy way. When people ask me why I didn't go down the same path, the best answer that I have, besides noting the grace of God, is that I trusted my parents and my upbringing more than my professors. I like that line. And uh, for the teenagers here in the room, I'd encourage you to remember that line. Uh, but then he went on to, the, to say this in the next paragraph. Parents and pastors aren't perfect. Not even really good ones. Paul is not saying our mentors must be followed at all costs. But here's the point. And it's very appropriate for teens and 20-somethings who like to question every authority except their own. Before you leave behind what you used to believe about the Bible... Consider who taught you to believe what you used to believe about the Bible. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying, Timothy, um, you know who I am. You know what I taught you. You saw how it empowered me to even go through times of incredible persecution and hostility. You know me and you know God's word. Stick with those things. Even when it's hard. In a hostile world, when you're faced with challenges, you're tempted to turn away, remember the way God's Word prepared others, how they shaped your, your life, and realize it's only God's book that provides the help to do that yourself as well. The equipment to live godly lives in a broken world. I only have a, a few more weeks to identify as a Michigander than what do they call people from, Indi from Indiana? Hoosiers? But in any case... Yeah, um, you know, when we moved here 20 years ago, I never would have uh, appreciated this list. But the list uh, that uh, you might live in Michigan if, and all of you are going to understand. You show people where you live by pointing to a spot on the back of your left hand. You might be from Michigan if that's true. You, you might live in Michigan if at least one member of your family disowns you the week of Michigan and Michigan State game. <laughs> Uh, you might live in Michigan if you know how to pronounce Mackinac and get annoyed when other people say it Mackinac. <laughs> um, you might be from Michigan if your Little League game was ever snowed out. Some of you can attest to that one. Uh, you might live in Michigan if your year has two seasons, winter and road construction. Uh, your favorite holidays are Christmas, Thanksgiving, and the opening of deer season which is considered a, a holiday in Michigan. And you know that UP is, not, is a place, not a direction. 
Um, living as a Michigander will forever mark me, but you know what, I, I, I just at a point in my life to sort of look back an awful lot, but there's a lot of other things that have marked me too. And the grace of those is people, especially the people that shaped my spiritual upbringing. And people that helped me understand God's Word and taught it in a way that it's become ingrained, ingrained in sort of the fabric of who I am. I hope that you can look back at your life and say the same kind of thing. You know, the, the things that have marked you the most, that have shaped you the most, are the people that helped you understand your need for God, the people that taught you how God's Word can change your life. Uh, and that literal word that you've learned to stand on. Paul wanted Timothy to remember the people that had shaped him. But also to realize that it is only as people live the truth, stood firm on God's word, that they've been able to navigate, navigate an antagonistic world. And Timothy could do the same thing. And so can you. And so can I. Only the Bible equips us to do that. So, we get to verse 15, and reason number three is this. Only the Bible reveals God's plan of personal salvation for sinners. Verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It is only the Word of God that gives us that ability to explain and understand God's salvation plan. It is only God's Word that draws a person to the Gospel. It is only God's Word that, that draws them to personally respond in faith to the message that Jesus died on the cross for us. Uh, Paul may have remembered uh, I have to think as he was penning this uh, to his dear friend, Timothy. That Paul may have remembered the day that he shared that gospel message with Timothy. And though he'd heard the scripture since he was just a little boy from his mom and his grandma, it took putting the pieces together by a person like the Apostle Paul for Timothy to clearly grasp it and respond. Where he realized that he was a sinner. As equally lost and condemned as every other person in the human race. And, and that his sin, both inherent and acted upon, separated him from a perfect and holy God. But that Jesus came to fix that. God so loved the world that he sent his only son to bridge the gap. Between sinful people and the holy God, he took our punishment. He endured God's wrath. He, he died as the ultimate consequence of our sin. And then he came back to life three days later to prove he'd finished the task. Fully satisfied the debt. I was opening the one and only way to God. Timothy had to understand that and then believe that. Put his faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, to be saved. That is what made him wise for salvation. And that's the only way for you, for me, for anyone that we know to experience the same thing. It is only the Bible that spells it out plain. And that leads to the 
classic verses at the end here. Um, verses 16 and 17 give us this last, uh, last reason why the Bible matters. It's only the Bible that is inspired by God and is therefore truth, trustworthy, and transformative of our lives. Verse 16, again, he says this, All scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The opening phrase there is theologically foundational to everything we believe. All scripture all scripture is God-breathed. Now, in many uh, different translations of that particular Greek word, maybe you've read before, all scripture is inspired by God or all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Uh, the word inspire has taken on a meaning in our current language that does make that a little bit elusive uh, for people in their initial reading of that. Because the verses uh, are not saying that all scripture holds the potential to inspire people, you know, that the scriptures hold that, that power. It is also not saying that, that uh, God inspired the writers of scripture. What it is saying is that, and God breathed, I think gives it a very accurate portrayal, um, that all scripture finds its origin in God. Um, the Greek word means that all scripture comes directly from God. It originated in the mind of God himself. He used individual writers. I started with 2 Timothy 1 earlier. Uh, he used uh, individual writers employing their unique personalities, their writing styles, their situations, their experiences. But the end product in its totality, the end product in its totality and its individual components is exactly uh, what originated in the mind of God as truth and that he wanted written down and that he wanted preserved for us today. And, and I kind of need to say that where it says all scripture, the word all means exactly what it says. All scripture. Uh, every word, every chapter, every book, every part, and whether it discusses the 24-hour six days of creation whether it dis describes the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels, um, every single piece of this book is equally inspired in the eternal, originating in the eternal mind of God. And as a result, that means some things. There's some logical flow down from that. Uh, a progression that comes from, okay, if every word, every piece of this book originated in the mind of God, that means some things. And one is that uh, it results in a book that is completely free of error. Completely free of error. It is a logical progression that if all Scripture, everything in it, all of it, originate in the perfect mind of God, then everything in the book is perfectly true, factual, free of any flaws or errors, and authoritative over us. You cannot pick and choose and say, well, I like this part, but this part, um, well, that doesn't apply anymore. Or, uh, you know, science has discovered that uh, it couldn't have been that way. Every word is truth. It's truth. Um, it's truth. It's trustworthy. And it's intended by God. 
to make a difference in our lives. Um, the fact that it is true leads to the second part. That the scriptures then become our only reliable standard for doctrine, for morality, practical direction for life choices. He says, all scriptures God breathed and is useful for those four things. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Um, because it is inspired, it obviously carries enormous value and is useful uh, for teaching doctrine. If you grab our uh, church constitution doctrinal statement and you look through the first half of that, all the doctrines that are listed are followed by a long list of scripture references. There's a reason for that. Everything that we believe as a church has to be based in here, based in God's Word. And there are other traditions that you know, hold just as much value on church tradition as scriptural content. But Baptists have, and we do as a church, held historically to biblical authority. The Bible is truth. The Bible is our authority for everything that we believe. And if it is not supported by the scripture, then we better be really, really careful about being dogmatic about it. Uh, it is useful for teaching. It is useful for rebuking, getting in our faces and sort of poking the areas of sin that linger in all of our lives way too much. God's Word has a way of stepping on toes because it was designed that way. And God does intend His book to rebuke us, but not just to make us feel bad, but to correct, show us how to make it better, how to make it right, how to change things in our life that need to be fixed. And then the last one, uh, the path of righteousness, explaining the way forward in life as a person whose path and direction is one that is right and pleasing in the eyes of God. And then you put all that together and you realize this last one. God's goal for his book, God's goal for his book is that it change you and it change me. Uh, correcting and shaping our lives to match his will. Because he says there at the end, here's the point, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that phrase, servant of God, isn't just pastors. It is every one of us. Every Christian, the Bible's intention is to equip you to do what God wants you to be doing in the world in which you walk. You cannot do it alone. You need to pursue and trust and use God's Word to navigate your life well. And those things together are why the Bible matters. When ancient uh, sailors were sketching, you know, the seas and uh, the process of all of that sort of thing, uh, they often disclosed their fears. And by that I mean that, you know, on the vast edges of unexplored water or unexplored regions, or nobody had traveled just yet, but uh, the, the perspective was something is out there, we just haven't, nobody's been there and we don't know. Um, often on some of those ancient maps, it would not be unusual to find messages written along the edges like, here be dragons, or here be scorpions, or here be demons. And it's not really too surprising, right? Because when we all have faced the unknowns, uh, we sometimes, oftentimes, expect the worst. Um, 
Um, in the early 1800s, though, there was a, a British explorer by the name of Sir John Franklin. This is a picture of Sir John. Uh, he was uh, an Arctic explorer. In fact, he gave his life trying to discover the path, the North Path, through from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. But uh, well known in Britain, uh, and he developed a habit that pointed to greater truth. Whenever he had a map passed through his hands, that had one of those types of phrases inscribed around the edges or in an unexplored territory, he would take a pen of his own, he would cross out, here be dragons, or here be demons, or here be scorpions, and in its place he would write the phrase, here be God. And I, I think of that, here's a man, that's a good example, he knew there was nothing unknown that God was not aware of. There was no place. God was not already present. And there was no more trustworthy guide in the uncertainties of life than the book God wrote and gave to us. And I would just close this morning challenging you to realize the same thing is true for you and true for me. We do live, we do live, I think, in Second uh, Timothy 3 defined terrible times. But we don't navigate it alone. We don't navigate that alone. God is present. And if you know Jesus as your Savior, the Holy Spirit is in you. Uh, and we have the inspired book of truth as our guide. The Bible matters more than ever before in the world that we walk in. But the greater question is that one that I put in the last part. Um, the greater question is not, does the Bible matter? The greater question is, does the Bible matter to you? Um, what about you? Because we can know all the facts. You can assent to what I shared and what Paul wrote. But only you can determine that it's going to matter. Only you can determine that it's going to change your life. Understanding that the Bible matters is only consequential if it matters to you. And so ask that question. How critical is God's Word to you and the way that you go through your life? We're going to sing a song in a minute, but let's pray before we do that. Father God, thank you for the book that you wrote and you have preserved for us today. Every Sunday we get to come here, we get to open this book, and we get to sort of walk through some verses that are the most trustworthy thing in the world in which we live. We're exposed to so much stuff today, but only your word is truth. Only your word is trustworthy. Only your word can transform our lives. It does matter, but it has to matter to us to make a difference. And so that's my prayer. That today as we close, as we step out into all the stuff that this week's going to hold, maybe some things that we would put in the category of terrible times. That we'd remember, we have an anchor. We have a foundation. There is a rock to stand on. And it's the book of truth that you have given us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.